nice having all the space up here. <laughs> if you would uh, open up your Bibles to John 2. I'm reading a longer portion this evening because I think that I want to give us all the broader context of what we're going to be discussing this evening in John 2, and we're going to be going all the way through 3, uh, 1 through 15. Um, I know it's a long passage, and I'm going to be just tangentially referencing things that I've spoken about in the past and bringing it to sort of our passage today. So I know we just prayed, but I know I always need prayer before I preach, so let's uh, pray. <laughs> Father in heaven, uh, we are so grateful that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, that God, you have not left us bereft in the world to guess who you are, but that Christ has come down, the one and only who is in the bosom of the Father, you have made him known. And God, we come tonight to your word, which is you, because you are the Logos, you are the word, and we sit at your feet to learn from you, Lord. So please shine light on us, Lord, light and more light, that we may be able to hear, receive, and believe upon the words of eternal life, Lord. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Beginning in John 2:13, it reads, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these, these, these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can I believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
And as Moses lifted up the servant, serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. As we have been progressing through the Gospel of John, we know that the primary purpose of John's Gospel is to prove the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God. And he's not doing this by merely asserting that Jesus is God over and over and over again. What he's doing is he's saying, look at the history of the Jews. There is 6,000 years of history in which God has been interacting with a people group. And there have been prophets that have been foretelling who the Messiah is to come because there's a problem with every single individual that exists that the God of the Bible has been saying, and that is Sin. All of us have a problem of sin. And no matter what happened in the Old Testament, whether or not the kings of Israel upheld the law of God or they did what is right in their own eyes, there was no permanency among God's people of righteousness. And so constantly throughout the history of Israel, there would be vacillations between following God's law and not following God's law, following God's law and not following God's law. There was this impermanency that uh, was a curse because the basis of obedience to God and the old covenant was works. And works, was, works were always insufficient. Sacrifices in the old covenant were always insufficient. They couldn't wash away your sins. And so there was the promise of this coming Messiah, this coming, this coming Savior, who was going to come and he was going to wash away the sins of his people. And there was a portrait of what he would come and do and what he would do and accomplish. And John basically makes this case that from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Malachi, Jesus is fulfilling every single portion of what it means to be God. And it's true in this passage today. So we considered the significance of Jesus expelling the money changers out of the temple. That this was a prophecy from Malachi that nobody could um, oppose him or resist him. One man cleansed the temple. And from the beginning, it was Jesus' plan to die. It was plan A, to be crucified. There was no uh, backup plan. Jesus dying on the cross was not a last resort. It was the plan from before the foundation of the world. Um, and it was demonstrated in the pronouncement that the Jews would destroy his body, and in three days it would be risen up. Jesus during this time, was making the argument that worship in the temple is completely insufficient to bring God and man together. There are two cleansings of the temple, as mentioned last time as we were John. One at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, one at the end. Jesus wanted to teach us as his living church that there is no earthly institution, even one that is written into existence by the hand of God, that is capable or sufficient to unite God and man. The church itself is insufficient to unite God and man. God has to do that. We just testify to that fact. Go to church, learn about God, but don't think that the church saves you or going to church saves you. Only God can do that. 
If the temple of the Lord where God had pronounced that sacrifices were to be made night and day for the forgiveness of sin was not sufficient to purify its participants, a new covenant, which was not at all like the old covenant, had to be put in place. Which is why Jesus makes that interesting phrase that his body is the temple. With the destruction of his body on the cross, he assumes all the failures of earthly worship in his death on the cross, as we read last time in Psalm 69.9 and John 2.17, paired together, teaches us, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The failure of the temple Jesus took the punishment for. So we as new covenant worshipers are not bound any longer by any earthly institution. As we remind ourselves that the prophet Isaiah prophesied in chapter 8, verse 14 of his book, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. God is the sanctuary of his people. And the church is the earthly representation of that. And we merely recognize and testify to the work of God. Because the work of God with which he works is that we should believe on whom he has sent. Jesus shows that any worship bound to this earth is subject to corruption. Religious institutions, no matter how pure in their conception and design, will fall away because of sin. Which is why Jesus had to come and become the once for all sacrifice for sins. The earthly representation of the church on this earth, every single church building at the end of time will burn up. These walls will not be here. You are the church. And the church as God's body is not your just physical dwelling. It is you are with Christ in the heavenlies right now and he upholds your soul for salvation. So that even if every, and this will not happen because God has promised it until the last day, even if every Christian on the face of this earth were to die, the church would not have failed because we exist with him in the heavenlies. And so the church cannot fail because it's incorruptible and it's upheld by God. Jesus shows that any worship bound to this earth is subject to corruption. Um, there is nothing inside of the creation that can wash us from all our sins. Romans 8.20 teaches us that the creation was subjected to futility. Why? That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So the church of God is now no longer bound to any temporal or physical institution. It is instead now a city that has foundations and whose designer and builder is God and cannot be shaken. So what I'm talking about here is the invisible church. The universal church, the church Catholic, as we might say, the church that you and I may not be able to see. It's the church that God knows, the church that has faith and is incorruptible. That church is a church that cannot be destroyed because it is a church who is preserved and upheld by God. And it is opposed to that old covenant worship because old covenant worship was done away with. It passed away. It became obsolete. Because Christ is the once for all sufficient sacrifice for sins. The lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The paschal lamb of the Passover. All sins of his children are washed away forever when they have faith in him. 
So the church of God is now no longer bound to a temporal body that can be destroyed. It is upheld by God. As Hebrews 11.10 and Hebrews 12.26-29 teach, the text reads, At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God wants pure worship. God does not want defiled worship. God does not want your imagination in imagining whatever you think you can come up with that might please God, God has set forth in his word how he wants to be worshipped, and we are meant to worship him in that way. And it is by faith we participate in the kingdom of God, which cannot be shaken, removed, or destroyed in any way. The old covenant worship system could. Since our God is a consuming fire, as Hebrews teaches us, there is nothing that remains in the new covenant pure worship that is earthly or carnal. All true worship with reverence and awe occurs by faith in heaven by Christ on our behalf, and we reflect that worship in time. Which is why Hebrews 12, 22-24 teaches us that we have already come to Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. As Ephesians 2.6 teaches us that we are raised up with him and seated, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All this to say that all true worshipers, are, worshipers of God are not upheld because they go to church on a Sunday morning. They go to church on a Sunday morning because they are upheld by God. The invisible body of true believers, which is the true church of the living God, is composed first, foremost, and only of those who have true and genuine saving faith towards God. And we each individually, therefore, become the temple of God. We become living sacrifices. Worship of God doesn't happen outside of the body. Worship of God happens inside of the body. Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Which is why I think the chapter break of John uh, chapter 3 was poorly placed. If you weren't aware, the chapter breaks of the Bible were added later by scholars to make it easier to find specific passages in the Bible. They're not inspired. They don't always give you the best instruction how to read the passage. Sometimes, however, they interrupt the flow of a text. We're meant to read the last portion of John 2 into the beginning of John 3. Nicodemus is John 3, in John 3 is a zoomed-in representation of why Jesus could not entrust himself to the people who had believed upon him, believed upon his works. 
Verse 23 of John chapter 2 says it plainly. They believed upon his name because of the signs that he did. What does Nicodemus say to John or Jesus in John 3, 2? We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. These people whom Jesus would not entrust himself to, as John 2, 24 and 25 say, um, including Nicodemus, were not people who were concerned with how Jesus could transform their lives from the inside out. These were people who saw amazing works and thought that this was definitely someone who came from God. Yet they were unwilling to admit that he was God. They had no idea how drastic of a change that God was going to make in the whole course of their lives. They liked Jesus because he did an amazing thing at a wedding by turning water to wine and shoving it to the man by getting rid of the corrupt money changers in the temple. They didn't know that Jesus was God and that he was accomplishing a great work that would destroy their ancient practices and beliefs. He didn't do away with the law. He fulfilled it. At the root of these people's ideas about Jesus, why he could not entrust himself to them was pride. They thought Jesus was another teacher from God, someone that they could uh, eat the meat and spit out the bones. They liked what they liked, and they were like, well, we don't like this. We can kind of do away with this. If you are a Christian, you accept Jesus wholesale because you either have all of God or you have none of God. There is no middle ground with God. You are either the one who picks up your cross daily and dies for Christ, or you are the one he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus came to radically teach us that life and service to God is not wishy-washy. It's not vacillating. It's not filled with pride. These men... These Jews of his days were so convinced in their own mind that they were right and righteous that they could not believe that God was coming into the world to correct them. We get so prideful in our religious talk. What's the, what's the word of the day around religion? That's your opinion. You can't tell me what my opinion is on religion. It's all opinion. And so we get puffed up in our own minds and our own ideas so that even when God comes to us with his word... It doesn't matter what God's word says. It's a religious opinion and everyone can believe whatever they want to believe. And that's what religious pride looks like. You can't tell me what to believe because it's just opinion and nobody knows. And God came down himself to tell you the words of eternal life. There is only one sin in the Bible that is said that God resists and that is the sin of pride. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, James 4, 6. These religious men of his day had become so self-confident that they had totally misplaced their faith. They had taken their faith, which was meant to be only in God, and put it into their works. They put their faith in how much they tithed, how much they washed their hands, how much they fasted, that they put their faith in their circumstances of their birth. They put their faith in their circumcision. They put their faith in their ethnicity and lineage. They put their faith in their history as though all those things had any power to save them. All those things did was promote spiritual pride and hypocrisy and have Jesus Christ comes down and whip them out of the temple. 
The earthly Jerusalem was so ensnared by these works, they could not move past them. When Jesus is dialoguing with Nicodemus, the teacher in John 3, one who should have been keyed closely into what God was doing, completely misses the whole point of what Jesus did in the temple. Jesus was not merely setting himself up as another Jewish sectarian leader. Jesus was proclaiming the coming end of the Judaical church, the Jewish temple, and instating a new redemptive rule which Paul explains to us in a figurative example taken from the scriptures in Galatians 4:22 through 31. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one with a husband. Now you, brothers like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. That means that when Nicodemus comes to talk to Jesus and uh, wants to know what's going on, he should have been aware of this passage. He should have known that there was this covenant that God had made with his people that was based on promise. And that there were all these signs that were happening in his day and age. And it was centered upon a man. And the rumors around him was that he was born of a virgin. That he had come and he had done marvelous things. And that he was fulfilling the prophecy in the temple by Malachi. And instead he comes, we know you're a teacher from God. He should have been bowing at his feet, worshiping him, kissing his feet, praising him. Because he was God in the flesh. And yet, Nicodemus, being entrapped under the law, had no idea who he was speaking to. Jesus does not entrust himself to the people who believed in him at this time because they were still people trapped underneath the law. It is the elementary principles in the Christian faith to repent of dead works, Hebrews 6.1, which is why Jesus did not entrust himself to the people in John 2. They still had not yet realized they needed to move out from under the old covenant. It is also why Jesus chose to reveal himself to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. Pure and undefiled worship of God does not happen by the trappings of religious garb and religious discipline. It happens by those inside who receive Jesus by faith. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, Believe me, woman, Jesus replied. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. 
for salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus is teaching his followers by his cleansing of the temple, by not entrusting himself to them, and his discussion with Nicodemus about the spiritual new birth that the new covenant was in no way going to be like the old covenant. Old covenant worship was bound to your worldly birth and a house of worship that was made by human hands. A new covenant is established in birth only by the spirit of God, and a dwelling of worship made by the hands of God himself. Not only that, at any time Jesus couldn't entrust himself to them because any time he got anywhere close to revealing to the crowds around him the true nature of who he was, what was almost always their immediate response? So they picked up stones to throw at him. Any time that Jesus even hinted at the fact that he was God, They picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus at this early point in his ministry doesn't entrust himself to the people there because he knows their faith is short-lived. Based on circumstances, based on the things that he was doing, and they were filled with pride. Pride, when truly confronted with the reality of who God is, immediately responds with violence. People trapped under the burden of the law hate the provision of the grace in the gospel. Humans desperately hold on to the shreds of their pride. Worship of God under the law gives itself to pride because no matter how vain the attempt is, worship under the law still believes it has something to offer God. Still believes it has something to offer God. Brothers and sisters, Grace makes the case that there is nothing at all that you can offer to God. It removes all occasions for pride. There's nothing in you that's good. There's nothing in you that should have caused God to desire you. There's nothing in you that made God look down and say, I want that one because I think that one's better than this one. Grace says you are all awful, sick, and wicked. And yet I'm still going to choose some of you. Because I'm a good God. And I am love. If ever you want a real example of how pride affects the hearts of individuals, and this is not sports are good, okay, but just look at how arrogant and hateful sports fans can be against a rival team. You know, they leave the game, they win against their rival team, and they're fighting the other team because the other team lost for some reason. And because one team can play ball better than another ball, they think that there needs to be violence executed after that. I understand, you know, we want to be a part of a team. We want to be part of something bigger than us. But pride can cause very awful reactions within us over the simplest of things. The Jews in Jesus' day were on team law, and Jesus was on team grace. Jesus knew what was in the heart of man because he wrote the book on human nature. 
Jesus was not like Professor X from the X-Men, reading their minds and knowing what was inside their noggins, and therefore knew that the crowd he was among was not to be trusted. Rather, this statement of Jesus knew what was in all of men is an anthropological statement. In verse 25, Jesus was making a statement about the state of the heart before God being of utmost importance. Jesus will not entrust himself to anybody, no matter how religiously devoted they are, if they are proud and believe that they can earn any standing before him. At this time, the text would even seem to indicate that not even his disciples or even his own mother had the fullness of Jesus entrusted to them as of yet. For all men is a statement without qualification in this passage. As we are all well aware, all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and there is no one righteous, no, not one. By this small passage, Jesus is making a universal divine pronouncement upon all humanity, bad, not to be trusted. Under the natural system of the world, the world of the flesh and sin, people are absolutely addicted to making themselves look good before other people. But looking good is not the same as actually being good. We ought to put no confidence in the flesh, as Paul writes in Philippians 3, 4 through 11. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless under the law. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. No matter how hard you try, church, to raise yourself from the dead, you cannot. It's impossible. Only God can do that. All Christians without exception can put no confidence in the flesh, and all Christians without exception try very hardly to do that exact thing. We have to repent of it daily. But faith that Jesus entrusts himself to is the faith that is humbly centered solely upon him. Him. This comes from our text in John chapter 2 verse 19 where he says, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Our attention is meant to be drawn to what kind of person this man Jesus is claiming to be. It will be one thing if Jesus claimed to do something somewhat fantastical, you know, I, I'm going to take this one pigeon and turn it into 20 pigeons, you know, it could be sort of a magic trick. But as, as so many different prophets and holy men said that they're capable of doing and tricked many people into believing, just as Joseph Smith convinced people he wrote the Book of Mormon. But Jesus was claiming the ability to do something astronomically impossible by human standards. I'm going to build the temple in three days after you destroy this temple. 
Can't do it. No one can do that. Impossible. Jesus does it in his resurrection. In one sentence, he was stating that he was going to transform the entire Old Testament worship system. That relationship with God would no longer be limited by geography or people group, or that he was going to resurrect himself to accomplish this. All of his listeners should have had all of their attention centered upon him in the same way that elderly conservatives like to watch Fox News, unbleaking vigilance and confidence in his word. Yet Jesus knows what was in all of their hearts at this time and would not entrust himself to them. As it states in verse 22 of John chapter 2, it was only after Jesus had raised from the dead that all of these things that Jesus was saying here clicked into place. That leads me to conclude that not even his own mother and his disciples were in a place that have Jesus entrust himself to them in the way that he was intending in this passage. As we, all, as we see all throughout the Gospels, that Jesus' disciples were constantly vacillating in their faith. As Jesus, or as Matthew tells us of Peter in Matthew 16, 16 through 17, Peter declares Christ the Son of the living God, and Jesus says God the Father has revealed this to them. And not a few verses later, Jesus rebukes Peter for saying, or rebu rebuking him about going to the cross, saying, you mind the things of man and not the things of God. And when another onlooker cries out in Luke eleven twenty seven through 28, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are all those who hear the word of God and keep it. Even the disciples, by merit of their being chosen as disciples and his mother, gave them no provision beyond what everyone else needed, which is faith in God, faith in the word of God. Until the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of Jesus' followers had faith that came in fits and starts. It was only after Christ instituted the new covenant in his blood, whereby we worship at Mount Zion in the heavenlies, where the fullness of his character has reached its zenith in this life, was Christ truly able to entrust himself to his followers. As John 16, 7-15 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. But concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because of this, the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. They couldn't bear it then. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Here's a little bit of application for us at the end. It is only those who are utterly aware of their own desperation before God that God entrusts himself to. Have you come to the end of yourself? Have you come to the end of all human institution? Have you come to the end of your religion and have you cried out, God, I want to know you, but I cannot unless you send your Holy Spirit to show me. Teachers cannot give you the new birth. Churches cannot give you the new birth. Your race, your ethnicity, your sacrifices, your religion cannot give you the new birth. 
This is a work that is only accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. Have you melted? Have you come to true humility before God? Have you laid everything on the line for God and seen that all of it, even if you amplified it a thousand times over, cannot and could never bring you to a true relationship with God? Have you depended on the Holy Spirit as your counselor and teacher to teach you the truth of the good news of the kingdom of God? That all of your hope for the future is bound up in Christ and Christ alone. As the evangelist writes in 1 John 2.27, But the anointing that you received in him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. That's not to say we don't sit under preachers and pastors and teachers. But you, if you have true faith, will be brought to places that God instructs you in the true word of God. You will learn him because he will providentially guide all of your steps to the place where you learn about him under true teaching and preaching. Do you abide in Christ because his anointing is upon you? Do you believe that the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes? So it is that everyone who is born of the Spirit. Or do you still live with a deep sense of failure under the law as a religious man or woman? Come out from under the law. You do not need to live under the law, under, under the law anymore. You are under grace. Accept the free grace of Christ. Make an absolute surrender to him and him alone today. And assuredly, as the sun rose in the sky this morning, Christ will shine upon your heart. And you will be accounted among those whom it can be said Christ has entrusted himself to. And as a sinner under grace, you have no need to prove anything to anyone any longer. No longer should you be in the business of convincing yourself and convincing others that you're actually better than you are. You don't need to convince others that you're a perfect person in order to be loved by them or in order to love yourself. God loves you if you have faith in him, warts and all. He loves you on good days and bad days. He loves you when you're irritable. He loves you when you lie. He loves you when you waste your time. He loves you when you're like the Samaritan woman at the well in the midst of his horrific immorality. God came into the world to save sinners like you. And he can grant you the new birth by the power of the Spirit. And you can be set free from all the sins and miseries that chain you. But you must come to an end of yourself. You must believe that you are nothing. Nothing at all. And that Christ is all in all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you did away with old covenant worship. We thank you that the, bloods and bulls of, the blood of bulls and goats